This podcast is brought to you by Ancestors. Ancestors is the UK's largest bleach-free, plastic-free and gynaecology-approved period care brand. From 100% organic cotton tampons, pads and liners to reusable period pants and period cups, Ancestors has got you covered. There's no nasties here. Period. Check out our range at Ancestors.com. Welcome to Sisterhood, the podcast with me, Lucy Lettuce, co-founder of eco-period care brand Ancestors. Firstly, I'd like to caveat that when I refer to the word woman in this in these podcasts, this is referring to anyone assigned female at birth. I want the trans and non-cis community to be included and represented in all conversations discussed in this podcast. Each week, I speak with new guests on anything from fertility and infertility to parenthood and beyond to be the virtual village in your ear and in your phone. Discussing the realities of day-to-day life, I'm lifting the lid on intimate thoughts, feelings and sensitive topics, hopefully educating listeners along the way. My guest this week is perinatal psychologist Dr. Jenna, who works with women going through a whole host of struggles, from those trying to conceive to those experiencing birth trauma or those looking for support with their postpartum mental health. So welcome, Jenna. I'd love you to give a little introduction to yourself, if you wouldn't mind. You did it so well. Um, Hi, Lucy. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You did it so well. That is exactly it. So I'm a perinatal clinical psychologist, which means I'm a a clinical psychologist. And then I specialize in supporting people in the perinatal period, which is, as you say, it is technically from conception, but I support people before that. Okay. Um, All the way through pregnancy, experiences of, of pregnancy and baby loss, birth and the postpartum period up until our children are around two. Um, that's a huge, huge time frame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. huge period. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so so how did you get get into this? You know, what's the sort of the path that you that you took to to do what you do today? So actually, I don't think I've ever shared this on a podcast before. Um, I was at A levels, so okay. a very long time ago now, <laughs> and um, I was enjoying and doing well in both psychology and drama and I had to decide between doing a psychology degree or going to drama school and I at the point at that point decided what I thought would be the more reliable career and opted for psychology um not realizing that actually getting onto a the, the doctorate which is the way that you train to be a clinical psychologist in this country okay. um in, in England sorry for people who aren't listening in England. um yeah it's very very competitive actually so it after I'd done my degree you get work experience then you do your doctorate which is like a paid three-year training course sort of equivalent to like nursing or medicine in terms of you have rotations you go to uh, work with different populations and different difficulties um and then you qualify as a a doc, like I said, Dr. Jenner, but um, not a medical doctor, a psychological mm-hmm. doctor, a doctor Amazing. of psychology. Um, and then I decided to specialise in perinatal um, around the sort of transition to me becoming a parent, actually, um, in sort of 2018. Amazing. And so, so pre kind of psychology at A levels and preschool, you know, do you think there was anything in your childhood or in your kind of upbringing, in your kind of family unit that potentially prepared you or ignited something inside you to want to work in this space with women and with families? I think the more work that I do in this area, the more I realise the connections um, and the links between sort of what I it's sort of who I am, where I come from, and um, sort of what I see that contributes to sort of difficulties in the perinatal period for people. Um, so I'm one of three children, but I'm the only girl. Um, I'm also the middle child, which I know various people have <laughs> different theories around. Um, but yeah, I was sort of the only girl. And I think that that dynamic was interesting in our family. And I think that being a girl compared to being around boys and those gender stereotypes and expectations plays out so much in the perinatal period. And um, yeah, all of that stuff that happens in society. I've always been a bit of an activist, if you like, a bit of a a system disruptor, a challenger. I used to get detention at school, not regularly, but, you know, 
more often than you'd, you'd maybe expect for someone who was quite a high achiever, purely because I would fight against things that were not just or things that have no good explanation you know the school system has quite a lot of those things <laughs> so yeah there's all of that stuff that sort of has come together and actually yeah the more I learn about the work that I'm doing the more I learn about myself because it's a never-ending learning journey the more I sort of recognize how that's sort of shaped where I've gone and the work that I do and why I'm so passionate about it Absolutely. And so, so we, we, we use the word kind of perinatal uh, and perinatal psychologist. I'd love for you to give a little bit of an explanation to our listeners in terms of kind of what that is, what it is that you do, how you can support women or how women may kind of be, be in, a, in a position that they're looking for support from a perinatal psychologist. Yeah. um, So perinatal, as I said, is is usually the definition of the term is from conception to um, one to two years postpartum Um, and perinatal psychology and perinatal mental health. um, We're specifically thinking about uh, either distress that's exacerbated during the perinatal period across that time frame or that is caused by. Uh, experiences in that time so um, experiences of trauma experiences of loss experiences of anxiety identity change the actual transformation of trying thinking about wanting to have a family which is on most people's agenda um, trying to get pregnant becoming pregnant being pregnant and giving birth and then being a whole new person um, so many things going on there (laughs) yeah I think it's it's huge. It's huge. And um, we are finally um, in, a, in a sort of broad stroke way paying attention to it in mental health services um, in, its, in its own right. And, you know, I think that a lot of that is to do with historically how um, women's emotions and women's mental health was was seen. I mean, most mental health diagnoses were created by men in relation to women's emotions. Um, but that's the whole the patriarchal mm-hmm. medical medicalization of, of emotions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're getting there in perinatal mental health and we're getting there in recognizing that this time of intense transformation change and challenge has not been well supported has not been and isn't well supported in our society and actually that can be really distressing for quite a lot of people and and people need support so yeah I support people um one-to-one in in therapy as, as a psychologist in my private practice um I also because I really want as many people to benefit from understanding perinatal mental health and understanding how to support people better I do quite a lot of training with people who are working with people in the perinatal period as well um and then getting to come on and talk about it with people like you as well is is (laughs) part of the work that I really think is important is getting the awareness out there that actually this is not a time where we should just be struggling in silence yeah there's yeah, we need to understand it better. We need to have accessible um, sort of support, and we need to recognise in ourselves what we need to be able to to be able to find that. Definitely. And so, so I'm curious, sort of starting from not the beginning, I guess, I'm somewhere in the middle, in this kind of day and age, and in the 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 way that we live, the society that we live in today, there are potentially unrealistic expectations on women around birth and the kind of the postpartum period I wondered if you were able to potentially shed some light on those and and how that those kind of potentially negative expectations can impact us yeah I think oh gosh there's so many different avenues to go down (laughs) so so much to talk about um I think at the basic level trying to understand where we are as a society um, in terms of how individualistic we are and how much we um, we don't generally invest in supporting other people. We should be, we're seeing that we should be self-sufficient. Um, we even put that on, you know, children and adolescents that in terms of our expectations are, are quite high and um, unrealistic for children, children in terms of their emotional regulation, in terms of, um, you know, their ability to achieve um, and the pressure, which we're seeing a huge boom in, in adolescent and mental health as well. Um, but in terms of the perinatal period, um, yeah, like expecting that 
as we've talked about this huge transformation, all of these life experience experiences and transitions, which in themselves by being transformational need support. Now we know that they're so often distressing um, for, for various reasons, but one of them is because there's this expectation that we will just breeze through it or just do it or this is what there's an idea that this is what we asked for that's that comes from society this is what you wanted so you shouldn't complain about it and then from ourselves if we wanted a family if we struggled to conceive for example we sort of minimize our own needs and say well this is what we wanted so we can't possibly struggle um, and what that can sometimes do is then add extra layers of distress in, in terms of judging our own struggles and judging our own distress. Um, but yeah, the expectations are that we, that birth, that pregnancy is, is tough, but you should just get on with it because this is what you wanted. Um, and this is, you know, what most people do. Um, the expectations now are that birth is traumatic and we should just accept that, um, which is a huge problem. And that if you wanted to, to have, if you didn't, if you want to have children, you need to just to look after them without extra support. Um, that's a society we've created. That is what's valued and that is what's promoted in our society. And actually, you know, you'll, you may, may have seen on the internet, but one of the things that people say is looking after children isn't hard. Looking after children and doing anything else in addition to looking after children is hard. And the expectations of us put on us by society and ourselves are uh, that we should be able to do more, more things really well all the time. Um, and yeah, this idea that actually we need to slow down, we need to take the pressure off, we need to be kind to ourselves, we need to be compassionate and understand that we're going through a huge transition. And I talk about lowering expectations but I'm very aware that that phrase has very negative connotations, that that's a bad thing, but actually, no, it's not. It's because our expectations in the first place are too high. Like no. lowering your expectations is to, is being realistic, sustainable, healthy, um, whereas the other expectations were unsustainable, unhealthy, mm. and wholly unrealistic. But that's the bar that's been set for various mm. reasons. Um so we really need to free ourselves of the guilt and allow ourselves to um, to do less mm. and to know that that's that's okay. Mm. And I, I mean, I think it also goes to that phrase that is so kind of often used in this space, which is, you know, you need to allow as as new mums, as new parents, and new families, those looking after infants and the young need to be able to find the space and time to look after themselves because by looking after yourself, you're also looking after your dependent because if you're not happy and healthy and obviously you don't always get a lot of sleep with new, newborn children or, or, or they're not well-rested is not on the list. Well, yeah, well-rested on the list, but, but you know, that, that understanding that we need to look after ourselves and able to look after others. And I think, Definitely we're talking about that more now, but for a long time, it was just, I mean, you know, that classic English phrase of like, keep calm and carry on. Just let's just kind of brush everything under the carpet and just bulldoze through. But actually, definitely there's much more conversation now around mm. looking after yourself and making sure that you're in, you know, a great headspace to be able to, to look after and bring up your, your young yeah yeah and i think that this looking after yourself to be able to look after your children um better i think that's a very palatable shift as a psychologist i'd go one further and say yeah even further you, sh you should look after yourself yeah because you deserve looking after Stop. Totally. <laughs> I, know, I understand that it we go we're on a shift and we're shifting mm. we're shifting the ideas aren't we from at the minute i'm you know we've got this idea of of super mom mm. and do it doing everything <laughs> and being the best but then we've also got this idea of being the other and having very little support that are mm. complete contradictions how can you we don't need to be super mom but how can you possibly conceive being super mom if you're not looking after yourself mm. like they're, they're at odds with each other yet they're these things that we're supposed to prioritize and mm. they're these things that we're supposed to be striving for and the thing is when we're striving for 
things that are either completely unachievable or unsustainable, there's always going to be a negative impact on us. That's mm. that's always going to be the way. Um, and then what happens with that is, you know, either we get, you know, welcome, welcome, you know, the quips, the gaslighting, welcome to motherhood, and this is just how it is, and all of these other things that make us feel like we're the only ones not coping or mm. that we should just just be able to get on with it and keep calm and carry carry on and actually yeah the whole the whole cycle is 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 unhelpful Mm. I follow someone on Instagram and she posted the other day about words that should be banned or phrases that should be banned and one of them was stay at home mum and it just really got me I you know just the whole quotation narrative around that Obviously, you know, being a mum is amazing and in many ways for so many, you know, they feel very lucky and privileged to to be a mum, but it is really hard. And the phrase stay-at-home mum just completely, I think, yeah, demeans it. And yeah, there's so much sort of minimizing language mm. around around women and mothers value and their contributions and all of that is the more that I've done this work and the more that I've myself now I'm a mum of two um sort of I've been on that journey with people the more I lean into things like feminist psychology and really sort of understanding even for me as someone who is who is quite assertive and has has been quite has been quite bounded with my role and the impact of the patriarchy on my role and you know all of those things seeing the ways in which it creeps in in those you know the language is so powerful um mm. and just there's so many things that we like we say just as well just just in front of things mm. um when we explain who we are and what we do mm. um and all of these things that we've been conditioned to to really believe about a lack of mother's value and you know, there's there's campaigns and, and people like Pregnant and Screwed that are doing really yeah. big, big things around this because it's so it's needed. And, and um, you know, there's there's lots of therapists and psychologists out there um, who who don't don't or don't need to get political. But actually, when it comes to the perinatal period, is so it's so political. Mm. it's so societal mm. um obviously I do a lot of work one-to-one um and supporting people because that other change takes time and takes more than just a little old me <laughs> on my a little old me on my Instagram um but yeah it's it's such a big a big thing and I think sometimes zooming out and realizing that people can think ah this isn't about this isn't just about me this isn't about my experience there's so much around that that set me up to 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 feel this way or to be mm. to feel like I need to cope in this way or to judge myself for this um and some people think that that can be overwhelming but actually that can be really empowering mm. to actually these these invisible things that have held us in these positions or held us in these binds for so long we can decide to opt out of that we yeah. can you know bringing it into our conscious awareness we can decide that we're actually not going to fall in line with that or we're not going to to play that role and we're going to do things that that are important to us that make us feel good that protect our mental health mm. um yeah so the, there's so much out there isn't there but and language is, is is a big one yeah no definitely a little while back we mentioned I think we both spoke about birth trauma until I had my son I didn't realize that if you had a particularly traumatic birth or a birth I'm assuming that going, you went through the NHS in this instant. Um, if you had a traumatic birth, that sometimes or perhaps periodically, the NHS do offer you follow-up for birth trauma. I wondered if you would wouldn't mind kind of discussing why it's so important to sort of address any if you do experience birth trauma and. Yeah, and what sort of options are out there for you in in order for you to address it? Yeah, I mean, birth trauma is such a big a big topic, and rightly so. A lot of you know, I work with a lot of people who've experienced birth trauma, um, but just to rewind it in terms of time, one of the biggest things that I really 
want to do um, is to get people to become educated around what contributes to a traumatic birth and what we know, particularly in sort of Western society in, in the UK. People often think of birth trauma as like a medical emergency, mm-hmm. um, you know, where either the mother or the baby or both were, were gravely ill or were mm-hmm. threatened or, or, you know, nearly died. Um, but actually what we know is that more, and I see it in the therapy room and we know it from research, is that m- birth trauma is more often about care provider interaction. So interactions with the maternity professionals that are involved in our sort of intrapartum care, which is sort of just the start of labour, birth yeah. and, and immediate postpartum. We know that that has the biggest influence on trauma. And we know that, yeah, that's that's and immediately postpartum as well. So there's something called sanctuary trauma, which is about people going through a difficult experience and then um, expecting, rightly so, as a human with needs to be supported after that and then being left on a postnatal ward, which is, you know, gravely understaffed. And, you know, the staff see this every day and they're burnt out and they're, you know, they've, they're struggling and the care and the support is not there. The validation is not there. So. I like to try and, well, I do lots of work with, uh, like I say, people that work with people in the perinatal period in pregnancy. Um, I really think birth preparation, which is sometimes called hypnobirthing, and birth education it can be really helpful, not to guarantee you the birth that you're expecting, but to understand that you can make decisions and have things in place that can reduce the risk of you experiencing your birth as traumatic. But in terms of when we know that birth trauma is on the rise, we know that, you know, care provider interactions are the biggest contributor to birth trauma in, in the Western world. And what happens after that is um, people can develop PTSD. So about thir- between 30 and 40 percent of people experience their birth as traumatic. So they would report that they felt like their birth was a traumatic experience. And about 4 percent of people will go on to develop sort of PTSD, which people would sort of see as like the logical next step after trauma. But what we know in the perinatal period and not what we know about women's experiences and our emotions and how we cope is that actually there are other adverse outcomes, which include postnatal depression. It's like the biggest mental health difficulty that is that can be underlined by birth trauma, but that isn't that is not misdiagnosed necessarily because the symptoms fit, but the cause um, can often be birth trauma. Um, and that's because we sort of shut down, like with birth trauma, it's quite different to other traumas. If you were to be in a car accident, people wouldn't want you to talk about it all the time or tell you to look on the bright side of it or tell you to be grateful, you know, all of those things. We generally don't get that amount of gaslighting with other traumas, um, but we certainly do with with birth and perinatal trauma. Um, And so then people tend to shut down, shut off and disconnect because that doesn't feel nice. Uh, They also get the sense that they shouldn't feel the way they should because they should just be grateful so they sort of tend to put a lid on it and that can lead to disconnection and that can lead to low mood and develop into postnatal depression so so we see we see different if you like diagnosable I don't diagnose I'm a psychologist rather than a psychiatrist but we see different labels put on distress after birth trauma but yeah one of the things that we're trying to get you know the NHS and everybody who works with people postnatally to recognize is to ask the question about birth trauma if someone has a, a child under the age of one or two ask them about their birth what i ha- what i've come to understand is that serve that birth trauma is so common now that people's sort of threshold for recognizing it as traumatic in themselves and in other people is quite high so we have a lot of minimizing around people's experience and comparison you know it wasn't that bad or so this was this experience we have all of that and all of that feeds into whether or not people think that they deserve or need support but what I will say on that is if you found your birth traumatic that means it was traumatic yeah, absolutely. like nobody else can label it and there was a there was a quote I can't remember I'm not stealing someone else's quote it's definitely from somebody else but I can't remember <laughs> who um so there's the famous thing which says trauma is in the eye of the beholder mm. and the updated version of that is trauma is in the nervous system of the beholder because we don't we don't choose trauma you can't choose you can't opt out of being traumatized so you can't gaslight yourself into thinking it wasn't that bad if it was traumatic it was traumatic mm. and you deserve support so I should probably move on to the next part of the question shouldn't I what to do about it so you know we can't we can't 
rely on other people asking us a question. We hope that they will. I hope that that change will come. But if uh, someone feels that they've had a traumatic birth experience and they'd like some support to unpick that and to heal from that, there are a few different options. So the NHS have have more perinatal mental health services now. They have a new sort of group of services called maternal mental health services, which focus on trauma and loss in the perinatal period. Most of the, so the perinatal mental health teams and the maternal mental health services don't accept self-referrals. So that would always be go via your GP or your midwife or your health visitor to get access to those services. Uh, we also have more perinatal awareness in services like IAPT or talking NHS talking therapist services, which are self-referrals. Um, what I would always say around if you're thinking about accessing support from them is to mention the birth, mention it, because again, like I said, the threshold for perceiving that someone's birth is traumatic or even asking the question, it's unreliable um, at present. So there's a lot of work happening in the NHS around, around getting that to become sort of part of standard assessments, but we're not there yet. So yeah, I mentioned that and, you know, the other thing that you can also access is a like a birth reflections. So there's various names that these that these um, services are called. So they might be called birth afterthoughts, birth reflections, or birth debrief services. These are typically not located in mental health services. They're located in maternity services, and they're usually facilitated by midwives who have some additional training, hopefully, in supporting people who've had difficult birth experiences. There's various feedback that I've had from my clients and from what I've read around how helpful they are um, because at the end of the day you may be asked to go back to the hospital where you gave birth and that may be quite difficult yeah. you may be uh, you probably won't be supported by the person who was present in your birth because of staffing and stuff so you'll have a midwife who has your notes and who can answer any questions and who can go through things what I find sort of midwife-led NHS birth debriefs helpful for if there's unanswered questions or if there's gaps in knowledge or memory or maybe you're planning another birth and you want to understand what happened um, but if there's trauma there I w usually would exercise caution around engaging with an NHS birth debrief because that's not their, that's not the expertise of the staff and again maybe going into a trigger environment um, having Having the service that potentially contributed, as I said, care provider interactions cause a lot of birth trauma. Having the person or a person who represents the profession or the trust that was involved in the birth trauma, answering questions about your experience or talking to you about your experience can feel uh, re-traumatizing. It can feel invalidating. It can feel defensive. It can feel not the safe psychological space that people necessarily need to heal. So there are independent practitioners who offer a similar thing, who work outside of the NHS and therefore they don't have, maybe it doesn't feel as triggering or re-traumatizing because they're not in the same context. And also they have no sort of ties to, to the trusts that are bound by policies and guidelines and this is how we do things here because that is the policy so I would say to exercise caution around that um in terms of if people are looking for therapy for birth trauma so the two sort of psychological therapies that that are recommended in the NICE guidance so the NICE guidance creates guidance for what is seen as as the best has the best available evidence for working well so being effective um, for treating birth trauma and PTSD, those are trauma-focused CBT and EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And those are offered by psychotherapists, psychologists, nurses with additional psychotherapy training. Um, the, I offer those therapies in my private practice and they have the best available evidence base for, for treating trauma and PTSD. That's not to say other things like alternative and holistic therapies wouldn't be helpful. I, I know lots of people that have benefited from various things, but I generally work with balancing the evidence base with what I understand about the client's needs and work in a very sort of person-centered way to, to meet someone's needs in the room in terms of their trauma. So you did briefly mention within that postnatal depression. Mm. I think postnatal depression is something that to be totally transparent, I've heard about my entire life. It's almost one of the few mm -hmm. sort of mental health discussions or phrases that I think has been 
mainstay in the sort of birthing, antenatal, postnatal space for quite some time. I wondered if you'd perhaps be able to give a little bit more insight into what postnatal depression is or perhaps more sort of how to identify within yourself that you might be experiencing it yeah um so postnatal depression is um again with emotions everything is on a spectrum mm. and you know how you feel is most important so Definitely. if you if you feel like this is affecting you and you want help like checklists and symptom lists of symptoms are, yeah. are helpful to an extent they're helpful for professionals but we are not the experts in you so I would always say that people you know trust how you feel what has changed Definitely. for you um and also you know as hard as it can be don't take no or minimizing for an answer if you really feel like this is different for you this is difficult for you and you need some support um because again what we might find is people that go to the uh, go to the gp or go uh, speak to someone and they it gets minimized you know welcome to motherhood or you know or it's just hormones and you know all these other sort of things that people that we know people experience quite regularly um in terms of postnatal depression so it's about having feeling sad upset tearful disconnected numb detached uh, so being emotional in the sense of of tears and feeling upset um and potentially feeling irritable but then having like a numbness around connection and a, a lack of enjoyment and a lack of interest and a lack of motivation and that being so frequent and intense that that interferes with you doing the things that you want to do and or need to do and just affecting your ability to do to live and to, to function and to feel well in yourself so it often affects sort of sleep and eating but in various ways like we have the spectrum some people it can mean they lose their appetite some people can overeat and we all have individual coping strategies for trying to not get better but trying to address address the distress that we're experiencing in the moment yeah address the distress that we're experiencing in the moment so um we all have those individual coping strategies so yeah it can affect sleep people can sleep more or less obviously postnatally we're not necessarily in direct control of that so yeah so there's there's postnatal depression there's there's baby blues as well which is sort of the thing that I think has got muddled up in there um but we definitely know there is an emotional hormone shift postnatally when milk comes in if if someone well milk will come in whether or not you're breastfeeding generally and then when you change any significant change in breastfeeding if you're breastfeeding um and there are going to be sort of hormonal shifts as things sort of go back to the way that they were um and actually we know now that it takes, I think it's like between 12 and 18 months without breastfeeding for all of your hormones to go back. Well, wow. never gonna, you're never going to be the same again, which I think we, should, <laughs> we, we need to punctuate. Um, yeah, it takes a long time for that to go back after birth. Um, so, yeah, I always, whenever postnatal depression is, is on the cards and I don't recognise that there's a, a, a key event, like a perinatal trauma that underpins that, there often is, not always, I always recommend someone has like a, phys a full physical um, workup with their GP bloods and things like that, just to figure out if there's any sort of postnatal like hormone stuff going on, any sort of iron levels, you know, yeah, any deficiencies and stuff like that, because one, it's the ethical thing to do, because I don't want people to be engaging in therapy if there's a simpler, quicker, potentially solution less costly potential solution um but i think that we need to acknowledge the changes that are happening in the, the perinatal period in terms of our mind and our body and that they can affect each other um absolutely and that actually leads me on to this word which i think is definitely being discussed a little bit more which is matrescence i wondered if you had anything to share on yeah um yeah, when I first came across this word, I was like, this is wonderful. And I I love, I love that, I love getting to know a word and a concept when it's just at the brink of becoming mainstream. Um, because I love seeing where that's rooted. I love, before it becomes diluted um, by mainstream, <laughs> you know, society and pop culture, if you like, I love seeing the traditions and the the groups of people and the values of those communities that have, that have 
protected space for that and that have meant that we still have that uh, because it's not a new word it's just a word that's not been in mainstream yeah. conversation yeah um, I think it did it was it in was it it was either word of the year or got introduced into the dictionary or something anyway it got like officially recognized quite yeah. recently yeah so I love I love that and you know we know adolescence we know newborn infant childhood adolescence adulthood but matrescence is something that is unique to to women and it's around this huge sort of spiritual hormonal relational life change Shift. yeah uh, uh you know of becoming a mother of not just the light bulb flicks and you're one day you're you're one day you're a maiden and one day you're a mother mm. that is that's what happens on the outside or that's mm. what happens on a piece of paper um but actually what it happened is a whole phase just like adolescence is a phase of of challenge of growth of you know change so is matrescence I think the easiest way to compare it to and to give it the respect that it's due is to compare it to adolescence and what we all recognize and actually sort of understand and permit in terms of you know change and growth in that time frame and that's the exact same thing but applied to um becoming a mother yeah definitely definitely I think I've heard it a lot more recently and I've definitely sought out those discussing it because I think for a long time the shift to being a mother was a lot about the child and your you know you go through pregnancy you you know childbearing and then the child is born and then the focus is very much on the child and the child's growth and for the, yeah. for the woman it's just you birth it's the child the ring it's, it's it's a doing rather than a being isn't it the exactly. way that it's the way that it's been sold totally and for me that's been so interesting even for myself like understanding myself and who I am and the changes that I've gone through yeah as, as you said I'm really I'm really interested I'm really loving this conversation about it and being able to yeah and, and you know in some ways bring it back to myself and help me understand where I'm at where I'm at with how I feel and and my journey as well so yeah. Yeah. And I think one of one of the big things that, that I that I see is people come to me with a diagnosis of postnatal depression or come to me with a diagnosis of postnatal anxiety or you know, they're the usual things. And actually, um when I assess if there's no, like I say, not a big event trauma, I'm not talking, but if there's no perinatal trauma, the most the biggest thing that it is is adjustment, adjustment to this. Absolutely. And struggling with integrating old life new life mm. what, what do I want from that what can I have from that mm. what do what is different now and yeah those things navigating that and adjustment is Completely. the thing and because we get into this battle of like resisting or you should be who you used to be but also you've got to be this as well how mm. do you do that like mm. I work a lot on postnatal adjustment with people so people who maybe have attracted like a diagnostic label in terms of mental health because of the way that this is impacting them. Mm. But actually, from my perspective, the work that needs to be done is not about recovering from depression or curing mm. anxiety. It is about supporting someone with adjustment and identity. Mm. Um, yeah, and and f- finding out who, who they are and who they want to be aside from who they're being told they should be. Because um, should is also a word that we should ban. Another, another common... Um, reason why people end up needing to see me or wanting to see mm-hmm. me or wanting to engage in therapy is because their relationship has changed because mm-hmm. they've changed and Definitely. they haven't expected that at totally. all totally. I mean I don't do discrete couples work but in terms of mm. sort of navigating that and mm. and recognize like we like you said earlier we prepare so much for the baby mm. like in terms of you know a lot of people now do birth preparation we prepare for the birth so that's the discrete event that does have a huge impact mm. but and then we also prepare for what the baby needs like my house is ready for the baby yeah like physical okay. needs yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah our house is ready for the baby but <laughs> is our relationship ready for that like not yeah. that you can never be ready but just yeah there's no no acknowledgement of that stuff so one thing that i think as women we you know you mentioned at the beginning kind of demeaning 
yourself or being demeaned or kind of the different narratives, different phrases that are used. One thing that definitely is potentially having a little bit more airtime now is things like mum guilt. And I guess in some ways it links to what we're just mentioning on identity and what it is and how it impacts your sort of your day to day. And yeah, if you have any advice or if you kind of, yeah, you know, from people that you've worked with or maybe even lived experience of, you know, how do we try to not feel mum guilt for being who we are and doing what we want to do while still being, you know, hundred percent committed to being the absolute best mother mm-hmm. we can. Yeah, I think so guilt is is huge and guilt is also like necessary if you like it it tells us what doesn't feel right like Mm. what do I need to change about this situation um but so often in in motherhood and with mum guilt it's the thing that we need to change is the judgment in itself and Mm. actually is this a fair judgment that I'm making about what I should and it's always underpinned by underpinned by shoulds Mm. is this fair these are the questions that I would encourage people to ask themselves Mm. is this fair is this helpful? How do I feel when I talk to myself in this way? How do I feel when I treat myself like this? What would I say if someone else wanted to do what I do? Or, and yeah, what would you think they should feel guilty? What advice would mm. you give them? I think a lot of guilt is created by this bind of meeting everyone else's needs and being super mum and then not being able to sustain that can create guilt. And then also recognizing that we need to take the time for ourselves because we're struggling, mm. but we're constantly in this pull to be the super mom and to meet everyone else's needs. Um, and yeah, the guilt is where we can't do everything mm. in, in that moment. We can't do everything. What it often means is that our needs are not being met or mm. we're not, we're not approaching this in a, in a sustainable way with realistic expectations. Um, yeah and yeah I talk about I've talked about um how mum guilt is one of my has been one of my favorite like obviously it's a psychologist thing to say one of my favorite (laughs) emotions for me in the postnatal period it really tells me when I'm doing too much Mm. it really tells me when I need to reevaluate the balance or I Mm. need to take a step back and let go of some things Mm -hmm. um so like one of the other things that happens quite commonly as if the mother is the primary caregiver and particularly if the mother's um, had the had maternity leave and, mm. and, and partner hasn't had that extended leave. Um, and particularly if, you know, also if the mother's breastfeeding, there's, a lot, there's this, idea, this idea that comes around of um, that we sort of buy into ourselves is that we are the person that our baby needs. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that is true. Are we not? (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, But like you said, they they need us to also be consistent and not burnt out. Is it guilt telling me that I need to be redressing the balance, delegating? Mm. Mm. For me, one of the biggest challenges was maternal gatekeeping of my husband's parenting. And that was quite easy to do with our first child because we had we were we outnumbered them so there was one baby and there was two of us and so me doing the maternal gatekeeping because obviously I knew how to meet my baby's needs better mm-hmm. because that's the belief that I had and you know to some extent you know breastfeeding and the rest of it that was true um and my maternal gatekeeping was pretty pretty big in, with my first baby and um then when you have when I had a second baby, I was just like, yeah, no, this is really not sustainable. And so I had need to let go of some of that maternal gatekeeping. And the amount of reductions in mum guilt that I've had through letting go of that maternal gatekeeping and knowing that if I want to be able to do the things I need and want to do, as well as looking after my baby, I can also be gatekeeping the way in which other people do the jobs that I mm-hmm. need them to do to release mm-hmm. me from that. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really hard, like that control thing. And and some people can find after, after you know, ha- you'll probably relate to this, being 
successful being able to control quite a lot of outcomes in our life pre-children mm-hmm. and maybe having a birth that felt like it wasn't fully under our control and a postpartum period where we were at the mercy of our baby's needs mm-hmm. um it can feel really comforting to try and get back into that position of being in control of everything mm-hmm. um but actually it's yeah like I say unhelpful in the end because mm-hmm. you need yeah you need to to let go of some of those things and it's really hard it's really hard absolutely I mean I couldn't agree more looking after a child or children is not hard it's doing anything else as well as looking after children that's not undermining the role of child minders and child you know that's that's an incredible job yeah um but yeah that's the hardest part if you add anything else in there no totally yeah just yeah is this helpful treating myself this way yeah, but I think what you mentioned about mom guilt and saying, you know, use it almost in your head, reframing how we view mom guilt and using it as actually, you know, something for us to pick up on in order for us to be able to reassess and potentially change our negative behaviours into positive ones to be more sustainable. Like what is, yeah, what is, what's the balance? What's being tipped here? Yeah. What am I being pulled into? Yeah, I think that's such a fantastic way of looking of looking at it. Moving on, I I it's ob- it's a very obvious question, but I'd love to know what it is that you love about your job. Why? What? What makes you get up in the morning and yeah, and and what helps you sleep at night? Yeah, I I I feel so lucky and privileged that I do love my job. Since particularly since I've specialised in perinatal, and um, I've never dreaded getting up for work, which I mm-hmm. is such an amazing position um, to be in. And I've never I've have felt the mum guilt, but I love going to work, and that makes it easier for, to be away from my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of my children are preschool age. So yeah. Um, well, until September. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we've got another transition coming. They never stop. They never stop. Um, yeah, what I love about my job is just the, as a clinical psychologist particularly, the variety of work that I get to do. So, um, you know, working in the therapy room, training, supervision, preventative stuff, research as well. So, I, you know, I'm, I work with um, one of our local universities supervising doctorate. Um, PhD projects around the perinatal period being asked to contribute to book chapters like everything the variety the variety of it is just incredible and doing it all in the perinatal period which I'm so passionate about um yeah I love it and and what do you find hardest or or most difficult the hardest part of my job is knowing that so much trauma is avoidable Mm um I talk about it so much I've mentioned it multiple times already on the Mm. podcast about care provider interactions like I'm not saying it's easy for systems to change um but we know that very simple changes in care providers communication or behavior can have huge impacts like Mm. when I'm in my clients with their trauma their traumas are about what was said or not said what Mm. was done or not done by people Mm whether or not it was an emergency C-section, whether or not it was a home birth, you know, Mm. whether or not it was hemorrhage, whatever the circumstances Mm. of the actual birth, what it looked like. Um, The hardest part is knowing that so much trauma is avoidable, Mm. which is why I do invest quite a lot of my time paid and free to work in preventative ways to try Mm. and upskill systems and recognize the need to be more trauma informed mm. and to prevent so much of the sort of postnatal mental health mm. um that's the hardest part yeah definitely that that frustration and that sense that you know I'd love to be put out of a job so I don't have to do any therapy <laughs> yeah. anymore not because I don't enjoy it but because yeah, yeah. I mean there will always be trauma and there'll mm. always be mental health difficulties you know but just the level of, yeah. of that it's at it's really hard yeah. Absolutely. So you've mentioned that you have two little ones, two children. I wondered if you'd be happy sharing how having your own children has impacted the work that you do. You mentioned at the beginning that you sort of moved into this area of work when you did have children, but kind of day to day, how does it how does it impact your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a parenting psychologist and 
I think that probably shows in my parenting. Not that <laughs> parenting psychologists are perfect and they'll be the first people to tell you that. But I, um, I, my sort of perinatal experience is um, I'm quite open about that, that I don't feel personally for me as a psychologist, it's helpful to be a blank slate. I feel like I want people to understand what my personal experiences have been, as well as my professional understanding and, and sort of expertise. Um, and whilst it's not my issue in the therapy room, I think it helps people connect and sort of feel safe and, and sort of want to work with me. Um, and I guess sort of my experience, the, the biggest part of my experience of having children um, the two, the two biggest things were the the, first, the sort of unnecessary medicalization of my first birth, which wasn't traumatic, but I recognized how um, I was lucky that my induction worked. So that was the key thing in understanding, but wanting to understand how birth works and the, the mm. emotional impact of birth. Mm. And then also we had a missed miscarriage of twins in between our two living children, which for which the care was well the, the lack of care was just astounding and the um the policies in in the service were just completely disregarding of of any emotional or traumatic impact of of that whole process really um and so those things really influenced me mm. coming into the perinatal work um and i think that most of the people that i work with are postnatal um, and so having young children and understanding how, what headspace is like, having realistic expectations for therapy mm. and having realistic expectations for between session tasks and having, real, I, you know, I have a very flexible cancellation policy as well. Mm. Um, because having children, we did experience primary infertility as well before we conceived our first child, which actually was probably the, the most difficult part of my perinatal experiences in terms of my mental health, mm. you know, coming from having a plan, <laughs> being, being career focused, being quite able to achieve all of my goals so far in life and getting to that age where we were ready to start a family and then it not quite happening, uh, you know, first quickly, then within a normal time frame, and then mm -hmm. even more, um, that was not being able to control it and all of the stress and mm -hmm. the comparison, all of the things that I see in my work with people, um, was yeah was a also a big reason why I you know I did defined perinatal and said I work a little bit before conception yeah I do work, work with work with people who are experiencing difficulty trying to conceive mm. because and for me that was the most difficult part of our perinatal experience and and not enough is talked about in terms mm. of that either and the impact of them becoming pregnant after those experiences mm. Mm. I, think I I, I I, I do work across the life, you know, across the perinatal span. Um, and I love the variety. Mm. Um, but pregnancy after loss and pregnancy after infertility and pregnancy after birth trauma can be a really vulnerable time because you've got mm. a current pregnancy and all of the stuff that's been brought with you from mm. those previous experiences adding to your anxiety or adding to your distress. Um, so, yeah, so I've had not every experience because nobody can have mm. the same experiences mm. but I've had quite a few key formative experiences yeah. in my perinatal periods that have really sort of influenced my my thinking my targets for preventative work and my you know how I show up in the therapy room and mm. how I work how I work with my clients yeah absolutely well thank you so much for sharing all of that so moving on slightly now Ancestors is obviously a period care brand and the purpose of this podcast is to kind of be that village in your ear, but also to be a platform to discuss women's wellness where, you know, and where things haven't been discussed before. So I always like to ask my guests if there's anything that's sort of like a bugbear of theirs or anything they'd like to discuss from sexual health, periods, menstruation, periods after birth, fertility. Yeah, I think um, the, one of the biggest things, you know, when you try to conceive, you get to know your cycle. And when it mm. takes a bit, you know, longer than you'd hoped or expected or longer than, yeah. than, is, than is normal, if you like, you get to know your cycle. And I sort of expected that after I breastfed, so my periods took quite a while to come back with both, okay. both of my children. Um, but I sort of never, I don't, I never expected them to be wildly different after okay. I was like oh you know they're going to be pretty similar to how they were before 
in terms of I got yeah. to know them then then it will probably just go back to that and I I just feel like that's sort of never talked about and again it's the same thing you sort of prepare for birth Mm. prepare for the baby you don't prepare for what your life is going to be like after no so yeah so like my menstrual cycle has been for, and for no medical reason yeah you know health wise has been completely different after really? each pregnancy um and yeah like st- yeah I mean I only stopped breastfeeding my youngest a couple of months ago but I regained my periods about eight months ago just completely different after and I just think in terms of the impact that that recognize yeah. I feel like I'm, yeah. I'm more aware of it now the fact that that does also change and I think you expect that it's going to change when you breastfeed but then you say oh, it's going to take some time to come back yeah we don't talk about when it does come back it can be completely yeah completely different in terms of length in terms of yeah heaviness in heaviness, terms of yeah definitely in terms of the symptoms like PMS or mm. you know anything that goes with it mine have been complete so like pre-babies mm. in the between and after yeah like in between one and two and after one, two, yeah completely different really yes I mean I don't know if that's everyone's experience yeah. but I just thought I'd put it out there because no thank you for that's it's so useful I think as you say periods you know post baby post breastfeeding not discussed and when they are it's often women the potentially being reactive like oh I've had a really heavy period is that normal or Mm. I'm still breastfeeding and I you know want to have another baby is that possible all of these things and yeah that there isn't a lot of conversation around them and there's you know yeah there's definitely not a lot of what as far as kind of I see um people being really open and honest about what they've experienced so no that's really really helpful for any listeners and really helpful for for me as well I I also have not had my period back so Yes. Yeah, my first took it took ages with my first and then not so much with my second. So so moving on now to uh, the, the kind of the end bit of the podcast, I'd love to ask you some quick five questions. Just the first thing that comes to your head, no right or wrong answer. So the first question is what's your favorite quote, motto, or affirmation? My favorite quote is you can't do the things you've always done and expect oh I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's if you do the things you'll always you've always done, you'll get what you've always got yeah um so it's like change is necessary yeah now I think it's an I think it's an Albert Einstein quote great that's great but the quick the quick fire pressure has got to me (laughs) um your favorite piece of advice for a mum a new mum to look after herself is the way I'm treating myself fair kind and helpful that's it just ask yourself that question when you're struggling with anything when you've got thoughts coming up when you're stressed when you're whatever there'll be some sort of internal dialogue is the way I'm talking about myself to myself and feeling about myself is it fair is it helpful great great your best parenting hack (laughs) best parenting hack um I mean I don't know it's not a hack it's not a hack at all (laughs) or advice or suggestion or anything it's uh words of wisdom for me particularly with breastfeeding co-sleeping changed the game for me um yes I mean do it safely yeah the guidelines and all that stuff but co-sleeping saved my vanity postpartum great one and final quick quick fire question what not to say to someone who has experienced birth trauma or is experiencing postnatal depression at least your baby's healthy Mm. that's it like or at least you know it could, it could be worse at least anything, anything starting with at least anything starting with at least and then the final section is Mythbusters um, it's in this section a simple yes or no or true or false and then if you would like to to kind of delve into your experience and your answer depending on whether you said true or false so again I only have one which is we did briefly touch upon it earlier um baby blues is the same as postnatal depression true or false false but I think people often minimize distress that could look like postnatal depression by calling it baby blues yeah uh, so baby blues is not the same baby blues was originally describing that sort of quite early hormonal shift yeah um I got it and I, I remember actually with my first baby my husband was like I was just in floods of tears breastfeeding milk would come in just after milk would come in floods of tears maybe day four something like that and my husband was just like are you okay 
like is your mental health okay i was like no i'm, I'm completely fine <laughs> I, knew, I knew what it was i knew it was this yeah. but also the fact that it's used as a bit of a a, a way to dismiss yeah. people who actually do need help yeah um is is really yeah. frustrating Jenna, thank you so much for joining me today. What an insight into kind of mental health, mental well-being, and the importance of kind of this massive change, perinatal period, um, in in our lives. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Thank you. Pleasure.